Welcome to the conversation. Today, we're talking with a returned guest, Dr. Ryan Starver. We have a new guest joining us today, Miss Sarah Bowling, who is a peer recovery coach with Schnick Medicals. Welcome, everyone, to the conversation. Thanks for having us, Angelita. Absolutely. So if you all don't mind, for our listeners, if you would please tell us a little bit about yourself. So Dr. Sarver, do you want to kick it off and share with people? Yeah, you bet. So I am a uh, board-certified family physician who specializes in addiction care. I have helped build uh, from the ground up medication for opiate use disorder programs in two different hospital systems and have helped develop two different warm handoff programs where staff uh, will see patients who go into the emergency department who, with overdose or who have been screened positive for opiate use disorder and then get them to the appropriate uh, inpatient or outpatient care to ensure that they are safe and that they get the medication they need to uh, prevent opioid deaths. And we've uh, been very successful at that. So thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Sarah, do you mind sharing with everybody a little bit about your role? Sure. So you can think of me as kind of Dr. Sarver's and Lindsay's prodigy baby. They have, they have really interested me so much and I appreciate them so much. I'm a peer recovery coach at Schneck Medical Center. I am a person in long-term recovery. Next June, I'll have 10 years of continuous clean time. So I'm very excited to be here and thank you so much. Absolutely. So Sarah, tell us a little bit about your role as a peer recovery coach at Schick Medical. So I have the best job in the whole world, I feel like. So what I do at the emergency department is if a patient comes in and they are experiencing an overdose or any SUD event, the nursing staff and the doctors will come get me. I'll go into the room with the patient. I will sit with them. I try my best to let them do all the talking and then um, kind of assess that and then go back, see what they want to do and just help them make the best chance of success from this point on. Everyone that comes in the emergency department isn't here for SUD or something like that. So sometimes they're coming in because they're sick or they they feel like they're having a heart attack or some kind of sickness. Not everybody comes in here wanting to go to rehab. But by opening that door for them and letting them know in the future, if there's anything that we can do, we are happy to do that. So our door doesn't close. Just because they walk out of the emergency department, it doesn't mean that that offers off the table. We have had a gentleman that came to the emergency room, wasn't ready, wasn't ready, but realized he had a problem, but just wasn't ready to change because change is scary. And I just told him the same thing, like when you are ready, like we will be here for you and we will make it as easy as possible. We will do all the work behind the scenes and all you have to do is say yes. Well, about two months later, when I thought I didn't make a difference, You know, and I felt like, oh my gosh, I didn't do anything for that gentleman. He came back and went to rehab that day. And there's so many stories like that. Right. 
And this has been a model of care that's been going on for, like you said, the last six months about. That's wonderful. Thank you for giving us that overview of, of your role and everything. And I want to move more into talking about how language has impacted people in recovery and and how it has stigmatized people in a negative way and how in the recovery community, we are really trying to put the person first in our language and in our work, in our support. And so if you don't mind, Dr. Sarver, can you give us a little bit of an explanation of that history of that person first language? Absolutely. So I think it's important to note, one, that there's this pervasive idea in our society that addiction is a moral failure and not a disease. That thinking in the medical community, we know better. That addiction is a chronic relapsing disorder of the brain in which a portion of the reward pathway of the brain is not functioning properly. And it causes problems in people's lives. It causes pathology. Much like other diseases, oftentimes patients were labeled as their disease. We would see an asthmatic or a diabetic or a schizophrenic. That has shifted as we start seeing patients as people. I know, revelation, right? They're actually people. Start treating people with diabetes, people who are experiencing an asthma attack, people who are mental disorders such as schizophrenia or substance use disorders such as opiate use disorders. So now that we know that idea of patient first has shifted, we can now start talking about diseases just as that, as diseases of a certain part of the body that doesn't work well enough to allow patients or people to continue to function the way that they would like to, to keep their lives going. So some of this language has shifted over the years, and it's going to be different depending on where you're at. Are you in an AA meeting? In which case people will call themselves alcoholics. They will own that term. In a medical setting, we, because we're going to talk about people first, we would say somebody who's experiencing alcoholism or who has alcohol use disorder, who is either in active chaotic addiction or is in early recovery or in sustained recovery. And those are different medical terms. We talk about how long it's been since they've used their substance of choice. And there's a lot of language out there that can be demeaning, such as the, the word addict. But for some people, they own it as a badge of honor because it's something that they overcame and they spent so much energy and so much of their life overcoming this part of their lives that it, it now is a badge of honor. The way that we use language is important and it's important to recognize what group you're using that language in. If it's a group of people who are in a peer group, such as a, an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting or a Narcotics Anonymous meeting or Celebrate Recovery meeting, some of that language, which would not be appropriate in the clinical setting, is used and it is appropriate in that setting for them to use amongst themselves. With that, I would like to, for Sarah to be able to share what her experience as a person in long-term sustained recovery sees in the community for the language that's used to describe substance use disorders, opiate use disorders, you know, the word addict versus addiction, the, the word recovery, how we feel about medications and how that different depending on what 
community you're really talking about. So Sarah, what's been your experience with the shift in language over the past five to 10 years? Well, I can tell you one thing is that the words that we speak, they matter. And I know just for myself, it was really hard to offend me when I was in my mess. Just like he said, I kind of wore that on my forehead. Like I was a junkie. I called myself those things, but I, I remember it being okay for myself to say that and people that I was using with saying that, but if it came from someone that has never experienced, it was like, you can't use that word. What I'm seeing now, thank goodness for Dr. Sarver and Lindsay, but they have really been leaders, like in the clinical setting to like show how words can either stigmatize a patient or de-stigmatize a patient. I just hope that they know they've just turned this whole community around and it's turned a corner and we're going forward in a way that, like I said, I've been in recovery for nine years, over nine years, and it is just really awesome. They're like the steam engine, and I, I believe it's going to just keep going and keep gaining speed. When people come in, and here's another example. So a gentleman who needed to come into the emergency room refused. He did not want to come in here because he was afraid of the way he was going to be treated and what they were going to say to him. And, and it was going to affect his level of care is what he thought. But then when I called him on the phone and I said, come in here, I will, I will meet you at the door. I will walk you back. I will stay with you the whole time. We, Lita and I will be here and, and you're not going to be alone and you're going to get the level of care that you need and deserve. He came and I believe with all my heart that he had a positive experience at the emergency room. Can I ask a question? I think that something that you hit on, there has been a game changer, if you will, in the community is modeling the way and it's modeling our language and in speaking to each other into groups and making sure we're using that person first language at all times, that it is going to destigmatize and it's going to spread. That's what I'm envisioning that to be. And something else that you said, Sarah, was that it's okay to say that about myself. But then when other people who had never had lived experience to say that, that's then demeaning to you. So can you talk a little bit about how that you feel like that has impacted the recovery community? Well, I guess I would say just by stereotyping anyone that has SUD, it changes the way people treat them. They either, they're either scared of them or they're angry with them because they feel like it shouldn't be a problem. Like they can just choose to not use and they can choose to change the way they are and the way they've been for a long time. Or stop or, at any time. Yeah. And then they, they shy away from them. And really what we've learned is by connecting people who are in active use, by just being there and connecting with them, that's what brings them out when they have no support and they feel like this is it. Like I have nothing in it and I have no future and I have no hope. They stay there. 
Like when I got clean, there wasn't much. This has all happened in our community in the last decade. And I would say even the last three or four years is real. I've just seen it. It's like a snowball effect. And we have an amazing recovery community, people that will, whether you're in active addiction or or just like Dr. Sarber said, whatever stage of recovery you're in, there is a whole community of people that are going to support you. And it's something that this community hasn't had and I haven't seen until it's like the last four or five years. Tell me about like, what do you feel like is needed as far as, is it continued education? Is it increased awareness? What does the community need to continue pushing that person first language? I think a lot of it, which I'm going to use Dr. Starber as an example, is just being an example, like being that person that you want other people to be and just showing the way, not really by pointing a finger at somebody, but just every single person just being a little bit better, just trying a little bit harder to understand our neighbor, the person next to us, the person um, that you see at the grocery store, the gas station, or on the side of the road with the with a sign. Even if you just ask that person what their name is and what can I do? How can I leave you better? Right. Not that I can solve all your problems. How do I make sure that you're better when I leave? Yeah. Okay. Dr. Sarver, what do you think would be needed for to move that forward in person first language? I don't think I could have said it better than Sarah. She's absolutely right. And just seeing that individual as a person treating them as a person and then asking them, not telling them, not mansplaining all over them that this is how they need to do their recovery, but asking them, what do you need? Where are you at? And sometimes helping them see that they're demeaning themselves and they're in a cycle of guilt and remorse and shame. And shame. And that shame <clears throat> keeps them in their active use. And once you treat them like a person, they begin to believe that maybe they are a person. Maybe they can be a person. Somebody else believes in them, so they can begin to believe in themselves. You light a spark of hope. Yeah. And that person can then lift themselves out of recovery. Yeah. And what we need to do is explain to the community at large, especially those who, who haven't realized that they're affected by substance use disorder. And I say I haven't realized because if they think that they don't know anybody with substance use disorder, it's because they're not a safe person and that person doesn't want to help them. If you're not a safe person, you need to reevaluate how you treat those around you. Right. You need to decide that all people are worthwhile and it's worth taking the time to tell them that they're loved and there is help and there is hope. So even those people wearing that badge of honor, how quickly words can take them right back to shame. That's where, to me, that's got to shift. Even in themselves, even in the group that they are part of the support group, was that they, too, move from that to talking about the person first. 
in their conversations and things like that. So that's very interesting. I guess my next question would be, or something else that I would be curious to know is, how do we move toward more destigmatized language in the community? What what do you feel like is needed? As Sarah said before, it's about modeling. So when you model the destigmatized language and you see how people respond to it and that feeling of hope and love pervades instead of that feeling of shame, it's self-reinforcing. And then when people start using stigmatized language, whether it's the stigmatized R word for people with an intellectual disability or, or stigmatized language against people of other races or other cultures, it goes out of favor. Once people start to realize how damaging it is and it's reinforced that that's not how we act, that's not how we speak, and people will generally go in line with that. And those formerly oppressed groups, which people with substance use disorders are absolutely an oppressed group in our societies, those oppressed peoples can start to lift themselves up. And we see that, we see that real change happen. The more that individuals recover out loud, the more that we say, hey, yes, addiction is a disease, but it's treatable. It's like a ripple effect. Absolutely. Yeah, I can't say that we can go out and change everybody's behavior, (laughs) but we can show them that with our integrity, what we can do to help change. And, And the people that we're really trying to help are the ones that are kind of down. I don't really care what anybody else thinks of me, but what about the person I'm trying to help, the person I'm trying to show that they can do it because I did it, and if I can do it, Anybody can. Absolutely anybody can. And you'll never convince me otherwise. <laughs> yeah, just being a model. And recovering out loud. I like that. Recovering out loud. I think that's a that's a new term of language that I have not heard yet. So that I think that's really good. So I really appreciate our conversation today. I think that just being able to identify what is stigmatizing language and how we're moving into person first, I think it's gonna uh, and we and we're responsible for modeling that way and meeting the people where they are. I think that's really important. And then saying to them, "Hey, we're here. We're not going anywhere. And what can we do to help?" Thank you all for today. I think this was wonderful. QSource would like to thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like to learn more, please visit us at qio.qsource.org. Visit our website for additional podcasts, videos, documents, and more. In addition to listening to QSource podcasts on our website, you can also find us on most media platforms, such as Apple, Google, Spotify, Podbean, and others.